Christ is risen. That was pretty good. Not perfect, but I'll take it. We're starting a new series on the Ten Commandments. And I'm really excited about this. I've been wanting to do this for, for a while. Um, we're not actually looking at any of the Ten Commandments tonight. We're going to be introducing the series and this passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 20 by looking at the first two verses. And then next week, Pastor Tyler is going to uh, help us understand and apply the first commandment, and then we're going to be working systematically through them after that. So if you have a Bible with you, make your way over to Exodus chapter uh, 20. Um, 10, the Ten Commandments, then and now. Now, um, if, if you witness to people, if you share the gospel, if you invite people to church especially, uh, you've probably already ran into someone who has told you this as an explanation for why they don't attend church. They'll say something like this. Well, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad you do the whole Christianity thing, the church thing, the worship thing. And they'll say something like this. Um, but me, when it comes to me, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. They may say something else like Jesus, yes, church, no. And uh, what they mean by that, especially that first answer, and I'm sure you've heard it before, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. They will admit they believe in some kind of higher power, maybe even a personal God or gods or a multiverse, or they may believe in the power of meditation or spiritual practices. But when they say, I'm spiritual, but not religious, the second part of that statement, I'll translate it for you. It means this. I don't want, if there is a God, and there maybe there is, I don't want a God to tell me what to do and how to live. So I'm okay with acknowledging there's more than just material stuff to this world, but I don't want to go to some organized thing. I don't want to go through a ritual. I don't want people to tell me what to do. I don't want to have to pray. I don't want someone bigger than me in this universe telling me no. That's what they mean when they say that. Now, there's a problem with that kind of thinking for Christians, uh, and no Christian can truly be spiritual without being religious, because for the Christian, um, to, to be in a relationship with God, two things are tied together. That is love and obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And one of the most central texts in the whole Old Testament for unwrapping the story of redemption, unwrapping the story of who God is and what he has done to save us, is this text in Exodus 20, which is a passage of scripture all about God giving us rules. Now you can pretend it's not there if you want to, but if we want to take God seriously, if we want to approach God and we want to be serious about following Jesus, then we can't ignore the Ten Commandments. The New Testament does not the history of Jesus creating a new religion. The New Testament, rather, is part two of this greater story of God making promises and then keeping promises. God giving laws, in this case, and then eventually creating a people who, out of their own hearts, will be able to keep those laws. So if we take the New Testament seriously, we have to take the Old Testament seriously. And friends, that means when it comes to the Ten Commandments, these are not just things... For back then, they are truths for today as well. Now, if you're not a Christian, 
when it comes to encountering this God who tells you what to do, your eternity is at stake. When you discover there is a God out there, he, he is there and he has spoken and he decides what you can do and what you cannot do, your eternity is, stake, is at stake based on how you respond to this God. But if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, there's also something at stake here. That is your own growth and holiness. Now you may think, well, doesn't being a Christian mean I can do whatever I want and that God's law doesn't apply to me anymore? Isn't that what it means? Well, not, not exactly, and we're going to work through that uh, tonight and especially throughout this series. So we can't take God seriously without taking his law seriously. And the Ten Commandments are at the very heart of his law. There are over 600 commands in the Old Testament law. And we could say that they could be summarized, the spirit of them could be summarized in these ten words, also known as the Decalogue. So Exodus 20, let's just read verses 1 and 2. It's on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now that's all we're going to do tonight. You say, well, what's in those first two verses? Well, quite a bit. And it's important that we start here before we look at these ten words from God to us. Would you bow with me just for a short prayer? Our Father, we submit ourselves to you tonight and fall before you. We ask that the seed of your word would take deep, deep root in our hearts. Deep enough that persecution won't cause it to wither and the cares of this world will not choke it out, but rather that it would be seed that's sown in good ground and be a fruitful harvest in our lives for you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, you may be wondering, if this series is about the Ten Commandments, David, then why tonight are we looking at verses 1 and 2? Is this just sort of a throwaway message to get the sermon series to 12 weeks? Well, it's not. At least, I don't feel like it is. Maybe you'll feel that way, but I hope you don't if you pay attention and and engage. We look at verse 1 and 2 simply because of this, because verses 1 and 2 were here. There's no accident that this is what prepares us. The author has put these here to prepare us for what comes next. And what we realize in these first two verses is that we get a glimpse of the God behind the Ten Commandments. So first of all, in your handout, if you have a handout and you're keeping track with it, first of all, we're introduced to the God who commands. The God who commands. I think it helps us to remember the setting. God was speaking to the Israelites, but they were the Israelites gathered in a particular place where some really interesting things had happened right before this. They're at Mount Sinai, and Exodus 19 describes the scene. Not a very happy, comforting thing. God descends his presence, uh, at least a little bit of his presence, descends on the mountain. And that brought lightnings and and earthquakes, and it it was kind of a fearful thing. And not only was it a a fearful thing just because of uh, the sounds and the sights, but God even told Moses that people that got too close to the mountain would forfeit their lives. Now, yes, this is the God of grace and love and mercy. And yet, at the same time, he's also the God that his presence descends on the mountain, and he tells people to stay away. This, of course, the, the author of Exodus is reminding us of what's going on in Genesis when after Adam and Eve were exiled, their priesthood of the garden, God's presence ends 
And then the angels take their place as priests to stand in the way, to keep people back, as it were, from the presence of God. Because now in our sin, we are unholy. So when God's descending on the mountain, when there's the thunder and lightning, as it is with Eden, God's not telling them, uh, he's not just trying to scare them. (laughs) The, The point is that they are unholy. They are not fit to live in God's presence. And God is holy. God is righteous. God is separated from us, not because of something wrong he has done, but because of the, something, the many somethings wrong that, that we have done. That's the effect here. It's a reminder of God's holiness, God's separateness. And into this, God speaks, I am the Lord, and this is comforting, your God. He says, I am the Lord thy God. So he's not just God, he is theirs. This is an interesting paradox. They're separated from him. The mountain is frightening. They will die if they get too close. And God says he wants to be their God all at the same time. God is stern. And he is stern to these people because they've just left a land of polytheism, a land of paganism, a a land where they've taken, we'll discover, a lot of uh, the the sinful practices and the sinful ideology. The the way that the Egyptians thought about the spiritual world was now, to a large extent, what God's own people had thought about the spiritual world. And, And so really what we see through the whole book of Exodus, and even Leviticus, is God teaching people that he's calling out of a very broken, messed up world what it means for him to be their God and what it looks like for them to live as his people. They've left this land of wicked spiritual practices, this land of idolatry, this land of not approaching God correctly. That that defined everything that they did. It was in the air that they breathed. And now they come into the presence of God who is holy, who cannot be approached, and yet he says, I want to be your God. In verse 2, he defends his role as lawgiver. Did you notice verse 2? He is the one that brought them out of bondage in Egypt. He's the one that brought them out, and now he gives commands. And this teaches us something so important about God. And I hope you realize, just with this statement alone, why we have a sermon before we start talking about each of the Ten Commandments. Here's why. The God of Scripture, the God revealed by our Lord Jesus, is not the God who calls for obedience so that he may rescue and create a people. No. No, Now, that's what some of you are thinking. That's what some of you, that may be why some of you are at church. You're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put my life back together. I'm trying to put my family back together. I'm trying to raise my kids right. They're all messed up. I'm trying to put my marriage back together. And you'll say something like this. The reason I'm doing all this, David, is because I want God to accept me. But that's not what God is like. No, he is not the God of our own imagination who calls for obedience, who says you have to obey me perfectly so then he can rescue and create a people. No. God rescues and creates a people and then calls that people to obedience. The story of what happens while God is giving the law to Moses with just the, the pure spiritual insanity of dancing around the calf, the calf after they've been delivered by God shows us that God did not wait to rescue them until they had cleaned up their own lives and figured everything out. These people were very messed up. They were not approaching God rightly. They weren't teaching their families the way of the Lord. 
They weren't obeying God. They weren't pure in their actions, much less their mind. And yet despite that, God sends the ten plagues. Despite that, he rescues them. Despite that, he's taking them out to give them their own land, their own home, to recreate Eden, as it were. To be among them. Now, God is not the God who calls for obedience so that he may rescue and create a people. God rescues and creates sinful, guilty, unholy people who don't know what it means to live in his presence. And then he calls them to obedience. I hope you understand this tonight. This, that this is how God works in the economy of having a people. And we are his people just as much as they were if you belong to Jesus Christ. God rescues, then calls for a life of obedience. God does not demand that we live a perfect life of obedience in order to rescue us from our sin from the judgment that we deserve. He rescues, and then he calls us to obey. And if you've not yet had faith in Christ, of course, we we would love, we'd absolutely love to talk to you about that. That's why we exist. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that trying to obey the Ten Commandments or trying to obey any of God's laws, for that matter, will never save you. It won't. So this is the God who commands The God who commands is also the God who rescues. But not only is is he the God who commands, he is the God who reveals. The God who reveals. As we look closely at the law, we realize that these are just not arbitrary rules. Now, growing up at home, your parents may may have had some arbitrary rules, right? Sometimes we have some arbitrary rules that we, we give to our own kids. My wife and I are on a mission to have a, a, a very, very few, very general rules, as few as possible so our kids can know them because we don't want them to get them in trouble for something we've never told them not to do. But parents can be like bureaucrats. We invent rules for everything and then we punish them without even them knowing they did something wrong. Well, here's the thing about God. God doesn't have any arbitrary rules. Because God is perfect, he's not like some sort of failed bureaucracy that generates a mindless red tape. And if you've ever worked with building codes and things like that, some of that has a purpose and some of it can be frustrating. But God, here's the thing with God, whatever God says to do, he has a reason behind it. And that reason comes, it flows out of his character. He is too good to not tell us how to live our lives. Do you see that? He, he is too good to not tell us what to do. God knows what sexual immorality will do to your life. So he's not going to be neutral about it because he loves you too much. He's a good God, and so his commands reveal his character. So each of these commands reveals something about God. Now we're going to go through these really quickly. So uh, try to keep up if you can. For the first commandment, God tells us to have no other gods before him. That's chapter 20, verse 3. The first commandment then teaches us this about God, that he is righteously jealous. Righteously jealous. Pastor Tyler is going to talk about this commandment next week. Now, the idea of jealousy kind of can hit us the wrong way, right? If you think of a kid that is jealous about his toy and won't share it with any of the other kids, and man, we think, what a little punk you should, you should share. Then we talk about God being jealous, and we're like, is God like the little punk that won't share his toy? God's jealousy is more like this. You're jealous of your child's life and well-being. So you don't let them go onto 54 in front of a semi. 
That's jealousy. That's kind of like God's jealousy. He is, he is protective of us. He is jealous of what is best for us, by the way, more than we are. If you're going to deal with the Ten Commandments or really any of the Bible, you have to get to this point where you realize God knows what's better for me more than my own impulses and desires. Now, people ask, well, how can this be wrong if I feel like I really, really want to do it? Well, the answer is you're not God. That is only true of God. Only God, only God can feel an impulse or a desire and it'd be absolutely 100% right all of the time. We are broken and fallen and it's just not like that for us. But God is jealous of us. That's why he says, don't worship anything else. In other words, don't find your identity in anything else. Don't find your ultimate sense of security in some sort of false God. Why? Because it's going to crush you and disappoint you. That's why he tells us not to pursue idols. The second command, no worshiping false images of God. Chapter 20, verse 4. This law shows us that God desires to be worshipped in the right way. God desires to be worshipped in the right way. One of the obvious failures to obey this command would be literally, physically carving out an idol. But it, it didn't terminate with that. Sometimes the Israelites uh, at the start of the kingdom got in a lot of trouble because they were carving out idols, but the gods, the false deities they represented, and and Paul later says these were actually demons tricking people into worshiping them, those, those false gods came along with a false worldview and very, very immoral practices. So it's not just that they, were, that they were wasting wood or stone. The idea is only God gets to image himself. Only God can tell us what he's really like. We don't have the right to decide what God is like. And this really confronts a lot of people today. Maybe even you, maybe even if you're a Christian, because we get our ideas of God and sometimes we cling to those ideas of God even in the face of Scripture when we know that we're wrong. If you had an absent father, for instance, you may imagine that God is distant from you, that he doesn't want to know you. If you had a controlling parent, you may imagine God is a micromanager. And we say, well, this is just how I've grown up to think about God. Well, we're not allowed to decide what God is like. God tells us what he is like. Number three, the third command, honoring God's name. This means God's name is holy. We don't take his name in vain. That is, we don't use it in an empty, frivolous way. How he is known is very important. That not only means how we talk about him is really, really important, but how we as his people who are called by his name live for him. God's name is holy. Number four, the fourth command, remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Because that's the next page in the handout, because I just do everything, every page flip. Remember, this, is, this one kind of weirds you out, I'm sure. And you're wondering, well, how do we respond to this command? Because like, most people don't do this. Well, um, we'll talk about it. This command has changed a lot. And if, if you're curious, spend an hour or so and just read the book of Hebrews. And by the time you're done with Hebrews, you'll understand how we, how we use this today. But what, uh, the, essentially, what this shows us about God is that he is sovereign over time. Like, we don't get to decide, at the end of the day, the best use of our time. God does. And God says rest is good. Now, you may disagree with that. You may think you don't have enough time for rest. You may think you have too many demands to rest. You may think it's better for you if you don't rest, but you don't get to decide that. Time doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. That includes the time of your life. 
The first four commands then govern our relationship with God. So it may seem obvious that these commands would teach us about God. Now, you may be thinking, what do the other six teach us about God? After all, these have more to do with our human relationships. Well, even these reveal something about God. Number five is the command to honor our father and mother. This commandment teaches us that God values authority. We, we come into this world, even if you feel like you're anti-authority, you can't really um, get away from the fact that we come into a world of authority. And God is ultimately at the top of that. He values that. It's important to him. The sixth command is no murder. That is, we cannot unjustly end someone else's life. What does that have to do with God, Dave? Well, God, the Bible teaches that God is the giver and taker of life. That's why we don't have the authority to take somebody else's life. That's why Jesus says we don't have the authority to hate somebody else. Because have you ever, have you ever thought about hatred like this? When, when you really hate somebody, I mean, when you hate them from the depths of your soul, you're essentially saying, I don't think that other person, they're, they're so bad, they're so frustrating, I find them so difficult, they don't have a right to exist. And if I was the creator, I wouldn't have made them. Now, I know that may sound strong, but that's how we have to understand hatred if Jesus equates hatred and murder. You may think, well, my hatred's not really that bad. Well, Jesus says it is. So, God's the giver and taker of life. We are not. We don't have the right to murder. We don't have the right to hate. Number seven, God commands no adultery. What does this have to do with God? Well, God is faithful in his covenants. God's faithful in his covenants. We understand even in Ephesians that uh, this really important covenant of marriage is a picture of how God deals with his people. So God calls his people to be just as faithful in their covenants as he is with his. I, I hope you get this as a Christian. We're doing so, you're doing so much more. When you stay with your spouse, until one of you dies, you're doing so much more than just saying, I like this person, I'm going to stay with them. I don't want to mess with getting a divorce. You're saying so much more than that. You're saying, this is how I think about covenants because this is what my God has taught me about covenants. Now understand, sometimes marriages can end without uh, one of the people wanting it to, and that may have not been your choice if that's happened in the past. But this is more than just God telling us to like somebody a lot. He's saying, this is how I do covenants, this is how I want you to do covenants. The eighth command. We are commanded not to steal in chapter 20, verse 15. Stealing is bad. One of the reasons you may not want to steal is because somebody could hurt you or shoot you or put you in prison. Right? And that's a good enough reason. But there's a bigger reason here, and it, it has to do with the character of God. To steal is to reveal that you have an insufficient view of who God is. Now, if you cheat on your taxes, if you take advantage of people, if you, if you do a service and you charge more then people really should pay you for that service. That, that's very, that is all very theological. What you're saying is, God has not done enough, even though he's my creator, even though he's my provider, he has not done enough for me. So I'm going to fix it by taking things from other people that I'm not supposed to take. See, whenever we don't steal, whenever we're not dishonest, whenever we don't cheat on our taxes, what we're saying is, I trust God, he's going to take care of me. What he has given me as one of his people is enough. Whether or not we steal, even small things, shows how we think about God. Then the ninth commandment, we're not, we're not supposed to lie. Specifically, we're not supposed to bear 
false witness. That is a lie that is destructive, that hurts someone else. And this reminds us that God is truthful. God's not telling us not to bear false witness just because it's inconvenient when we do. No, God is a God of truth who is absolutely reliable in all that he says and all that he does. And when we are honest with people, even when it's hard, we're reflecting what we think and know about God. Then the 10th command, not to covet. This commandment teaches us that God can be trusted, not only with our actions like stealing, but even in our hearts. This one is not external, but internal. And it means that God's sovereignty is not just over our behavior, though it is, but God is even sovereign over our thoughts and intentions, our desires. And it means that God can be trusted with what he gives us. Now, there's more than this. So the Ten Commandments reveal a lot about God. The Ten Commandments also reveal the God who loves. That's number three, the God who loves. Now, after running through that whole list, you may be thinking, doesn't, isn't this all kind of negative? I mean, David, you're talking about God, and it sounds like God is just a person who wants to tell me all the things I can't do. <laughs> now, God, of course, has the right to just tell us, He could have just revealed that. He could have just said, don't do these things. And he is God, right? But the the Ten Commandments are so, so, so much more than that. So much more than that. There's another divine attribute about God revealed, not in one of these, but in all ten of them. And in fact, in the entire law. And that is his love. I I don't think it's on the screen, but Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 22. Verses 37 and 38, Jesus is talking about how we, how God's people are to obey the law. And here's what Jesus does, verse 37. He said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Now, this is really cool, right? Because this is a completely positive statement. Jesus not only says, this summarizes the Ten Commandments, he says, all the law, all the prophets, it was shorthand to refer to what we would call the entire Old Testament. Jesus is saying, hey, I know there's a lot of negative commands. I know there's a lot of thou shalt nots. But really, here's what God is getting at. I'm giving you these negative commands, and, and here's, here's how you, you, you obey them. Here's how you live them out. Here's how you fulfill the spirit of them. Love. Love. Jesus ultimately says that to obey the commands is to live a life of loving God and loving our neighbor. Now this is very, very positive, isn't it? How does, how does this work out exactly? Well, if you love people, you won't steal from them. Right? If you love someone, I mean, if you really, really love someone, you're, you're not going to kill them. Right? Okay, I was hoping for some affirmation there. Um, you, you're not. If you love someone, now this is actually a little bit countercultural, but it's true. If you love someone, you would never have adultery with them. If you actually love them. So, if we obey um, those later six commands by loving our neighbor, we obey the first four commands by loving God. 
You know, if you love God with all your heart, you're not going to find your identity and your security in other things besides God, whether that's sex or money or power or control or your career. Those things are never going to seem ultimately fulfilling to you if you are in love with God. Because you will see in God so much more than any of those other things could offer you. If you love God, you're not going to him in the wrong way. You're not going to have wrong thoughts of him. You're not going to distort what he says about himself. If you love God, you're not going to use his name lightly. And if you love God, yes, you're going to rest as a way of saying, I trust God to provide what I need. Love God, love neighbor. Now, some of you may think it was really odd that I began this sermon, apart from the rabbit trail about our family plans, I began the sermon with Christ is risen. Because you may be thinking, aren't we talking about the Old Testament? What in the world does does this have to do with Jesus being risen from the dead? And some of you see a disconnect there that's really not there. Romans 5.5 teaches us this, that the Jesus who is risen from the dead, the ascended Jesus, and who is the ascended Jesus? The one who sends the Holy Spirit. This is what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. He has sent the Holy Spirit, and his love, Romans 5.5, I'm paraphrasing, his love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, this is how the law is fulfilled. This is what Ezekiel 36 and 37 are all about. This is what Jeremiah is all about in his prophecy of the new birth. God is, is taking us, and through the Holy Spirit, he is pouring love into our hearts so that we will be able to obey his law. This has, the Ten Commandments have everything to do with living as a Christian. Because living as a Christian doesn't mean Jesus forgives you and then you go about and on your merry way and you do what you want. Being a Christian means that Jesus who forgives you gives you the presence of his Holy Spirit who, yes, comforts you in your times of sorrow and in your times of suffering. Yeah, he does that. But he also, the, the apostles spend, spend just as much time talking about how the Holy Spirit empowers us to love others and therefore obey God's law. If you're a Christian, that means God has given you his spirit. Why? So that you don't put other gods before him so that you don't make a false image of him, so that you don't take his name in vain. So you honor your parents, so you don't commit adultery, so you don't steal, so you don't manipulate the truth, and so you don't covet things God has not seen fit to give you. This is all about the God who loves and is teaching us how to love so we can obey. Finally, the Ten Commandments show us this. Number four, the God who saves the God who saves. The Ten Commandments have a lot to do with your salvation in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't contradict what I said earlier. You don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved. However, what the law does to us is very, very closely connected to our realization that we need to receive God's grace, repent of our sins, and put our faith in Jesus. In this way, the Ten Commandments have a lot to do with our salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. 
Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is good. The law was our schoolmaster. It says the, the Greek word for this is paidagogos, and that does not mean teacher. You may see the word school and think teacher. The law is not our teacher, though. Um, this word means you could also say guardian. And, and here is what the paidagogos was in the ancient world. Uh, the, uh, wealthy families, if they had enough money, would hire a disciplinarian to take their kids to and from school. So they wouldn't have to mess with taking them to school. I, I do not have one of those. That's why sometimes you'll see me here bring my daughter to school. I do not have a paidagogos, as most people today don't. But it was sort of like a butler. They would take them to school. If they had ancient homework, the equivalent of practices they had to do after they got done with their instruction, then this disciplinarian would, would make sure that they did it. And further, um, these people would carry around a stick. And if the kids didn't listen, they'd hit them with a stick. In other words, um, Paul is not saying, I'll just ignore that. Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying the law is your teacher that teaches you how to be saved. Now, if you're reading it, you're reading it wrong. The law does not teach you how to be saved. No, the law transports us to the school where we sit at the feet of Christ and he shows us how to be saved. The law just beats us over over the head enough to get to Jesus. That's the point. So Paul says the law is our guardian that took us to Christ. And what happens when we get to Christ? Well, we've been beat over the head enough to realize that we cannot save ourselves. That if God really has given us all these commands that we flippantly do not obey, even the most religious among us, then we are in deep trouble with this God. And so Bunyan begins Pilgrim's Progress with this line. I saw a man clothed with rags, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. And he read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, what shall I do? And this is where it starts, for Pilgrim, for Christian. The book, by the way, the book is not, does not represent the Bible, nor does it represent a kind of gospel tract. Later on, Christian is going to find evangelist, and then he's going to get on the path, and then he's going to find the cross and eventually the celestial city. And this is the journey all of us are on. But his journey begins in reading the book, and this is Bunyan's allegory of the law. Christian's path to salvation does not begin by finding the evangelist. Before reading the book, he wouldn't have listened to the evangelist. He realizes rather that there was a king in another country who had given these rules that Christian had failed to obey. And so because he failed to obey these things, he was in a serious predicament. By showing us how desperately sinful we are, by showing us how needy we are, this holy God who speaks to us shows us that we cannot save ourselves. And so we are drawn to Christ. I want to close just with with two questions and then four steps. In response to what we've learned tonight, two questions and four steps. I'm not working toward an invitation. This is not really an invitation-type sermon, but I do want you to reflect as we conclude in these final minutes. 
So two questions. Number one, do you know God as rescuer? Do you know God as rescuer? Now again, I, I, I know we have a lot of Christians here, and I, I'm quite aware of that. But it's possible you could be here, and you're of this mindset Despite hearing about grace and despite hearing about the songs and maybe even despite hearing some gospel sermons, you still are entrenched in this very human mindset that says, I've got to make God happy. I've got to obey him. And then one day he will accept me. Now, if you don't know God as rescuer, then you are in much bigger trouble than you could ever imagine. Jesus says, I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners to repentance. A doctor doesn't visit healthy patients. He visits the sick ones. Have you thought about God that way as your rescuer? Have you thought about God not as the man at the top of the pit yelling, telling you to get out, to climb out, but as rather the, the one that climbs in the pit himself and then drags you out? If you don't know God that way, then you don't know him at all. Second question, for the Christians, do you approach God as a consumer or a worshiper? You know, it's possible to be a Christian, to be really, really interested in in what God has done for you, interested in the benefits he gives you, so much so that it's to the total exclusion of what God demands of you. Now, our secular friends may object that the only reason we go to church is to feel better about ourselves, but some of them are probably right. I think some Christians just go to church to feel better about themselves. Consumers come to get things. Worshippers follow orders if they're really worshipers. I think going through this series will help you determine which category that you are. Now, four steps, four quick steps, and and then we'll be done, and, and we'll pray, and we'll be dismissed. How can we practically respond to to this truth about the Ten Commandments? Well, number one, I think you should memorize them. I think you should memorize them. I've talked to a lot of Christians who want the Ten Commandments in courthouses. They want them in their front lawns. They want them in their living rooms, but they don't know what they are. I think that's a problem. Don't, Don't you think so? Memorize them. Number two, teach them to your children. A lot of people get nervous with this idea of catechesis. And they're like, I don't want to tell my kids what to believe. If you're a Christian parent, it's your job to tell your kids what to believe. I hate to break that to you. Someone's going to tell them what to believe. It ought to be you. So teach them the Ten Commandments. Now I've got, I don't have our text from verses 3 to 17 in full on the back of the handout. You'll see it's very shortened. Because that's not just for you, it's for your kids. Start working on those. And now it's going to raise, your kids are going to have a lot of questions about what they mean, which is a great, that's not an obstacle for you. That's a great opportunity for you to think about what they mean. This will lead to some great conversations with your children. Number three, number three, because of these 10 commandments, we need to confess where we have failed. Every Christian needs to have confession as a central part of their life. It should be a regular part of your routine that you confess your sins to God. Confession is not a good work that we do. We don't earn favor with God uh, with confession, but we take God's side against our sin and we receive the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. Number four, depend on the Holy Spirit each day. Depend on the Holy Spirit each day. That's number four. Uh, The heart of the law, that is God telling us to love him and love our neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. These are not meant to just be analyzed and taken apart like you're dissecting a frog in school. They're meant to be lived out. God is interested in the new covenant to recreate the kinds of people we are so that we can obey him 
out of a heart of love and do what he's called us to do. Let's pray.